Where did this fear and otherization, if, if American Muslims, if black American Muslims have been around for so long, have contributed, have given to this nation for so long, and so have immigrants as well, where does this fear and otherization come from? It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Haris Taran is the child of refugees from Afghanistan. He's also an American Muslim who works for the federal government. Since 9-11, the burden of being Muslim in the U.S. has grown, he says. These are tense times for Muslims. The religious group faces discrimination, and many feel like Islam isn't viewed as part of mainstream society. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Muslims are on the receiving end of a lot of negativity in the U.S. A Pew Research survey shows nearly one in five Muslim adults say they have been called offensive names in the past year, and 6% say they've been physically threatened or attacked. The religious minority group is often the target of the president and the media. This intense focus has generated a dual life for many American Muslims. Taran says it really started 16 years ago. So when 9-11 happened, we were caught off guard. There was a group of people who didn't represent us, our narrative, our community, who hijacked literally our faith and planes and committed a terrorist att attack. But we were also hijacked at that moment. Our narrative, our community was also hijacked at that moment. What are the roots of Islamophobia? How did it creep into public discourse? And how can the narrative be changed? Tarn is joined on stage by Rabia Chaudhry. She's an American Muslim who wears a hijab. She refers to it in her talk. She's also an attorney, activist, and author. Here's Chaudhry. When I was invited to speak on this panel, uh, I was a little bit concerned because I didn't feel like us to fully exactly represent, I mean, the spectrum, uh, the diversity, the incredible colorfulness and, and broad range of Muslims in the world and even in America. Uh, and I was especially concerned that there was no um, black Muslims, no African-American Muslims on this panel, mm -hmm. because each one of us is going to bring a completely different perspective and have, have a different kind of engagement with this country. So I'm going to tell you what my story has been, and that is this, that so my parents are from Pakistan, Pakistan, if you don't understand what I'm saying, Pakistan. <laughs> um, let me translate for you. Um, and I was uh, an infant when they came to this country. I, I'm the firstborn. My um, siblings were then born here. And I was uh, six months old. So, you know, I was raised here. My father worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture for nearly 30 years. He's a veterinarian. And uh, there is this unknown, weird, hidden veterinarian mafia, all Pakistanis, all throughout the USDA that nobody knows about. Right. But all of poultry country and like all these rural areas, you find all these Pakistani veterinarians who are with the USDA. So we grew up in these rural American communities. And I also, I always felt very, uh, very American. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of tend to say that my, I feel like Pakistan is like the mother that birthed me, but the United States is the father that raised me. So I have like deep loyalties to both countries. My father worked for the government. He also taught me you know, to be a good citizen and to give back. And this is where we're, we're here to stay and all these things. Um, but that's not the story of a lot of people uh, in this country, especially the black Muslim community. So I was concerned about that. But um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself now and sure. turn off the mic and then we'll go on. Thank you, guys. Uh, well, thank you, Rabia. Um, well, my story is a little, uh, is, is a little similar. I, I'm also of immigrant background. 
Uh, actually, I was the child of, of, of refugees from Afghanistan. Uh, my parents um, fled war uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and, um, and when they came to the U.S., my father had a choice. So he was the vice minister of, of education in Afghanistan. And so he traveled around the world, was a cultural, was an education attaché in multiple countries. And, and, this is, and the reason I tell the story is because it's integral to who I am as an American Muslim today. And so he had a choice to go to many countries around the world. He, has, he had friends and he had connections in Australia, in the UK, in the Middle East, in Indonesia. But he chose to come to America. Uh, the first reason was because he studied at the University of Nebraska uh, in the 60s. Um, and so, um, so he loved middle America. And so he, loved, he fell in love with America at, at that time. But then when we fled and we came to the, to the U.S., my God, godfather, who, God bless his soul, uh, passed, uh, passed away uh, about two years ago, was a 91-year-old Jewish man. And he worked with my father in, in Afghanistan on, ed- on, issues, uh, on education issues. And so when, when my father decided to move here, he moved here because he, and he used to tell us this as a kid. He said, I moved to this country because I found acceptance. He said, everywhere else I traveled, I knew that I would not be able to be a full citizen and find acceptance and be a member of that society. But with America, it was a little different. He said, I think my children would be able to find that acceptance. And so that's integral to my story, because I, I work for the U.S. government now. I'm talking to you with, within my personal capacity. I'm a senior policy advisor at the Department of Homeland Security. So I work to protect Americans on a daily basis, but when I fly through the airport, I'm always questioned by my own folks. And then I have to pull out my DHS badge and be like, suckers. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so, th- so that happens quite a bit. I get those looks, uh, you know, because I have my hipster beard. Yeah. I get the, the second looks when I'm on the airplane, but, uh, but it's all good. So, yeah, so I work for the government, but my background, I, um, uh, I worked for a Muslim institution for about nine years. I ran the Muslim Public Affairs Council in Washington, D.C., and we worked on, on a host of issues, on civil rights, national security, violent extremism, worked on changing perceptions of American Muslims uh, here in the U.S., but like our stories are not the, I mean, they are typical American stories, but we're seen as other, as foreign. But our stories are also not, the, uh, we've, we come from a community. I, I wouldn't say community. We, from, we come from communities. Uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, about the African-American Muslim community, who's, had it, who's added to the rich history of our country and all, our culture. And we'll talk a little bit about this. But that's, but that's who I am. Uh, what drives me is to make sure that America is a better place every day. Um, uh, I love this country. Uh, I'm committed to it. But I know when you love this country, you also have to make this country feel a little uncomfortable so that it gets better by the day. And so that I think I always try to, I tell people and I tell my own kids, put yourself in uncomfortable positions on a daily basis because you'll grow and your society will grow. So I guess the topic of our conversation is what does it mean to be a Muslim in 2017? What is it? Actually, I looked at it, and, and I kind of did a double take. It said, what does it mean to be American and Muslim? Mm-hmm. And I found that a little weird, because I don't consider myself American and Muslim. I just consider myself an American Muslim. There is no and American. But what does it mean to be an American Muslim in 2017? So I'm going to ask you that question. Is it different than being an American Muslim in 2016? Other than the fact that we don't have a Muslim president anymore? 
I kid, I kid, I kid. Not, too soon, maybe? Allahu Akbar, he was great. Yes, um, he was great. So, uh, Barack. Yeah. Assalamu alaikum, Barack. Yeah. He's, yeah. He follows like one of our friends on Twitter and that's all, that's enough of a connection. He'll, he'll give us a salam. Yes. So, you know, I, I've been getting the question um, a lot. About, well, first of all, I want to actually address the American and Muslim thing. And I mentioned this earlier when I was giving an interview is that I have been asked this question so many times since 9-11 when I've talked to churches, schools, whatever, what have you. Um, do you consider yourself an American first or a Muslim first? And that's a direct challenge to me. That's not, a, that's not like a friendly question. That is somebody trying to get to like, you know, trying to like uncover some kind of loyalty right there. Of and I think it's such an unfair question. I don't know if anybody else would be like challenged with a question like that. So, but these are questions that for those of us who have ended up becoming kind of professional Muslims talking about Muslims and Islam and all these things like since 9-11 to hundreds of audiences we have to deal with. Um, but I, you know, people seem kind of like, kind of in, it, what's interesting to me is kind of the shock and awe that people have been feeling in the last like six months, like since I think the election to now. And if you ask me, is 2016 or 2017 much different for, 20, for Muslims than 2016, the truth is actually not that much different. Because what people don't realize is that we haven't gotten to where we are today like in a vacuum. It hasn't happened overnight. Oh. It has been a slow, long boil. The canaries in the coal mine have been saying, please pay attention. Anti-Muslim bigotry is on the rise. Hate crimes are on the rise. Anti-Muslim sentiment is on the rise. And people haven't, have not been paying attention until we got to this point. Yeah. And so... With the immigration um, uh, executive orders and stuff, that was the first time I saw a real galvanization of people really paying attention to, wow, this is a real thing. Yeah. Like, you know, that, that using law, using immediately, like that, that Muslims are on the receiving end of a lot of uh, negativity, and this is how it's being used now. Um, and it was great to see, like, the coalitions that were built around that. But it's not new. I mean, when, when it was announced uh, during, the during, during the presidential campaign that Trump was considering a Muslim registry, we had a Muslim registry. Nobody knew about it. Like, it already existed, you know? Um, and a lot of things have happened that people don't realize, but and I will say- it was called? Nasir's, N-S-E-E-R-S, yeah. -E I can't remember what it stands for, but national, so, well, you should know. Uh, Between the two of us, somebody will figure it out. N-Sears. Um, but it was a registry, and it was like really problematic. There were so many, and I, um, at that time, consulted with the embassy of Pakistan because uh, they asked me to come as an immigration attorney and um, work with Pakistani nationals who were being, who had to go register uh -huh. men, Men from 27 Muslim-majority countries had to go register. Hundreds of them, maybe thousands, did not come back. They could not take lawyers. I know, this is the United States. This happened, and nobody really realized this happened. Um, 2002, 2003, right? Um, but I will say this. Uh, the, U the United States I know in 2017, 2016, 2015, this is not the United States I grew up with. That is completely um, undebatable. And I have two daughters and a son now. My daughters are 28, and then I'm four-month-old. And what breaks my heart is that like- 28 or 20 and 28? Okay. Yes, I have been raising babies for a long time. <laughs> Every decade I have a baby. So <laughs> next decade it might be my 50s. Hopefully it won't happen. But, 20, but the point is that you know, for my 20-year-old and my 8-year-old, the only United States they know is the one that's after 9-11. Yeah. That is the America they grew up in. And my 8-year-old doesn't understand as much, obviously, but she, she watches us watching the news, and she now has a habit, whenever she's a politician or a pundit, anybody on the news, she always asks me the question, does that, mom, mom, does that person like Muslims or not like Muslims? Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I'm like, don't, don't be concerned with this stuff. You know? So what breaks my heart is that they're not gonna experience the America that I grew up in, which never felt hostile to me. You're so right, because 
growing up, I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley, and, and growing up, Muslims, Islam, these words were just exotic words. Nobody really knew what Muslim was. The first time I had an interaction about my identity with anyone was really, uh, my name is Horace. They used to call me Horace. So I, like, I was known as Horace, like Horace Grant. You remember the Chicago Bulls player, Horace <laughs> Grant? So I grew up as Hor Horace. Um, uh, and the first time my identity actually came out in any way, I think it was like sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade. It was during the first Gulf War. When, when I got called Saddam Hussein for the first time. That was the first time that I felt like I was other. But that was all, that was, like, that was it, and, that was, and it was done. I, I had an average childhood. Sometimes people thought I was Latino. Sometimes people thought I was Indian. Like, I was a shade of brown, some shade of brown. Ambiguous. Ambiguous. But it was, it was interesting, I always like to tell the story of what made me want to get into the public conversation about Muslims, because they're really, as Wajahat Ali, uh, the rock star playwright and, and op-ed contributor, says all the time, there is no such thing as Islam. There is, I don't know who Islam is. I know Muslims, I know a lot of Muslims, but there's no such thing as Islam. And Muslims practice the religion very differently yeah. from community to community, from country to country. And so I, uh, in a previous life, I used to be a middle school teacher. I taught middle school, I taught social studies, and the, my first year I taught at a Muslim school in Pasadena, California. It was a blue ribbon school, top 5% in the country, like baller, rich Muslim kids went to this uh, private school, uh, and non-Muslim kids, and because it was just a really good school. It was not because it was Muslim, but it was just a really great school. So the first week of my first year at teaching New, at New Horizon, 9-11 happened. Not September 11th, that was the first week of school for kids in Southern California. And I had, actually the second week, I had dealt with these kids for one week prior to 9-11. And I had done some student teaching. And they were in a completely different world. I mean, they looked at the world very differently. It was like an innocent, innocent view. The week following 9-11, I remembered, and I remember their faces, I remember the burden of having to be a Muslim in America following September 11th. The fact that right after that, the second week, I took them to do volunteer work in a senior citizen's home in Pasadena, California, like the liberal bastion of Southern California. And there were senior citizens who refused to have them read to them because they were Muslim. I was in one week. And at that moment, I knew that I had to do something different because it's, it's beyond the classroom, right? This is gonna get way beyond the classroom. And the second thing that made me wanna do like Muslim stuff was the inspiration I got after Katrina. I was a first responder after Katrina happened. Mm. And I, you're talking about the Pakistani little crew at USDA? Yeah. So I land in Mobile, Alabama. Like Mobile, Alabama to start to hand out food with the Red Cross and Islamic Relief and the Church of Scientology. Like that was my crew. Uh, right. The guy from the Church of Scientology was telling me, he's like, dude, your, your, your little shirt that says Islamic Relief on it, you need to expand that logo. Because these people need to see that word Islamic uh, on your shirt. I was like, no, no, it's all good. I don't want to be shot. <laughs> I want to go home safe. Uh, but it was right after Katrina. So I come in as a first responder. And um, I see in this small town, this Pakistani physician. He's an American Muslim physician. I meet him uh, uh, while, while we're distributing food. And I say, so you guys are, you, you're in Mobile, Alabama? He's like, yeah. He said, if you want to come to our home tonight, we have 
26 physicians that refused to leave Mobile, Alabama while during the hurricane. We could have all left because a lot of folks left. We refused to leave. Us and our wives stayed so we could take care of our ailing patients. And that's the story that no one knows about American Muslims. No one knows, but that is the typical story of American Muslim in 2017, in 2006, in 2010, but nobody, so what I wanted to do, and the reason I started to do this work is because I wanted to highlight that story and make sure that the kids, especially our kids now, um, uh, know that story really well. You know, I've heard estimates that up to 20% of physicians in this country are Muslim. Yes. Um, and any of all the Muslims here today, we're actually all failed doctors. We all failed medical. Yes. I, we are. I mean, I'm not joking. I was pre-med for three years. I failed my parents. Yeah. You are listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, Haris Taran and Rabia Chaudhry. Taran is a senior policy advisor at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. He instructs the department's leadership on immigration, civil rights, civil liberties, and counterterrorism. Rabia Chaudhry writes about countering violent extremism, civil rights, immigration, criminal justice, faith, and gender. She's the author of Adnan's story about Adnan Syed, who was featured in the groundbreaking podcast, Serial. Now back to their conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Here's Chaudhry. Yeah, you know, uh, when you talk about the, the, the burden of being Muslim, mm-hmm. one of those... Um, shocking experiences I had, and I do a lot of work with Muslim communities in different parts of the country. Uh, I went to um, Kentucky, or I'm sorry, Tennessee. I was in Tennessee, and I was doing... The same thing. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the border's right there. Um, I I went to uh, Tennessee, and I had a series of talks I was giving in the community on different issues, including national security and uh, civil rights and things of that sort. And they said, okay, listen, we're going to... Our youth group is getting together, one of the mosques. Can you just, like, have a session with them and just kind of talk to them? And I said, okay, that's fine. I'll love to meet them. Like, about... 15 to 18 year old uh, kids, about 20 of them in a room. And I thought, you know, let's just kind of, I want to see where they are, where their hearts and minds are. And this was maybe about three years ago. I said, let's do an identity, uh, uh, pro- let's do like an exercise. And the exercise is very simple. Everybody draws a tree with branches. And on every branch of the tree, you just write an adjective that you think describes you, right? Like, and so that tree then represents you. And then everybody did that. And then we went around the room and I said, now read off like the branches of your trees. And they did. We went around the room. Now, this, is a room full of kids who are maybe second or third generation immigrants. A lot of them are um, Kurdish communities, Bosnian communities, but, but so American, right? I mean, completely American kids, Americanized kids. We went around the room, not a single, per- not a single one of those kids used the word American wow. to identify themselves. I couldn't believe it. And I, and, I, and I was like, I kept waiting. I'm like, what is happening? It was like Muslim, Kurdish, punk rocker. I mean, like, you know, all the, whatever it is you want. Um, and when I asked the question, like, one of the young girls who was more vocal than, than some of the other ones was like, it's hard for us to adopt a title that, like, rejects us, basically. And that's when I kind of realized um, that I feel like, you know, the, the American Muslim kids who have grown up after 9-11 in the shadow of 9-11, like, how challenging their idea. Yeah. Like, I feel like I need, a, like, a hug from this country. I mean, like, it's been hard. <laughs> but um, because free hu- She's accepting free hugs, by the way. Females only. Men, it's like, <laughs> fist bump. Um, <laughs> Got to keep that halal. Um, 
reinforcing that stereotype. No, dude, that is my personal choice. Well, it's like this thing right here. But anyway, I, I, um, I, I'll, I air hug you. I'll air hug you. I'll air hug you. Hugs from everyone. All right. Um, so, you know, since that time, I have, because I, I feel like, you know, at least for those of us who knew in America before 9 11, um, we have a core of resiliency. We feel a sense of pride and identity. We feel a sense of duty here. And I just don't, and I, and as somebody who, and, and both of us have worked in this space, yes. you know, talking about like um, radicalization and violent extremism and how young people are vulnerable and people in, the, in, in our communities can be vulnerable to people who are trying to prey on them. Because that's really what's happening. When you have a recruiter trying to like engage somebody to do something, it's like sexual, it's like a sexual predator online. They are like finding the people vulnerable and then talking them into doing things that they ordinarily probably would never have done. And, um, but having a, an identity that is so conflicted, I mean, it just, I think is really dangerous for our community. I mean, it's, it's uh, meaning that, you know, it, they don't, these kids might not have the same sense of... Um, belonging. Belonging, yeah, I think that's what it is. And, and that's a great point. And, I, I, and I, this is where I want to talk a little bit about uh, the story of an American Muslim or who American Muslims are and how far back does it go. Yeah. Because um, this issue of belongingness, right, when you talk about a Muslim... It's, it's really an, the other, the foreign, the newly arrived individual. Um, and that's sad because I, I teach a class on American Muslim history. And I cover, guess which periods? Take guess. Which periods do I cover, do you, you think? Colonial. Colonial. So I cover like the slave period until like 1950, where Islam and Muslims have, were an integral part of this country. First of all, about 20 to 30 percent of the slaves who were brought to this country, the estimated number is about 20 to 30 percent were Muslim. And if you read a lot of the, the initial historical uh, uh, accounts of Muslims who were trying to pray and engage their slave masters and engage some of the folks at a public level, that has been there. And I always tell people, uh, my founding father that I have an obsession with is Thomas Jefferson. And I go to Monticello every year to his home, but I, I, I live in Virginia. I'm from the Commonwealth, so I love my state, but I love Thomas Jefferson. And one of the reasons I love Thomas Jefferson is because of that, that idea of religious liberty, inclusion, and pluralism that he injected into our public discourse in the founding of this nation. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the, religious, uh, the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, which essentially our First Amendment, a lot of the work in our Constitution, is based on, he mentioned the word Mohammedan, which Muslims were referred to as Mohammedans back then. And so he mentioned Christians, Jews, Mohammedans, pagans. This was part of the discourse of our early founding. And then, of course, that continued. That continued, but the African-American Muslim community, people just generally know Malcolm X. But, and I always tell people this, it's the most ironic thing. The most famous American around the world was who? The most famous American? Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. Ali. Was a Muslim man. Most, you go to anywhere in, this, in the world, people will know Muhammad Ali Clay. Not just Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali Clay. Like anyone you, you talk to, you go to a small village mm -hmm. in, in Southeast Asia, they'll know who Muhammad Ali Clay is. And I always tell people the ironic thing about Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment is that the most famous American in the world is not even Barack Obama, who's another Muslim, <laughs> who's not, <laughs> it's not uh, Bill Clinton, it's not Michael Jordan, it is Muhammad Ali. And um, so the question that I have 
And I think we need to kind of unpack this a little bit. So where did this come from? Like, you talked a little bit about uh, how in, in, you know, Islamophobia started to creep in the public discourse. Um, you know, Wajahat Ali has written about this. He wrote Fear Inc. at the Center for American Progress. Where did this fear and otherization, if, if American Muslims, if black American Muslims have been around for so long, have contributed, have given to this nation for so long, and so have immigrants as well, where does this fear and otherization come from? Well, you know, um, just to comment on um, your favorite founding father, I mean, this is like the, the, the complexity of history is, yeah, he did. He did everything you said, but he probably also owned black Muslim slaves. Um, and we can't, like, right. move that out of the equation, no, right? Of like, course not. So, um, and so we have to keep that in mind. So, and I say that because I want to reinforce the, the experience of, of, the, of, of black Muslims in this country is different. It's very different yes. than the experience. When we come, we, like, you know, my father, you know, has instilled a sense of pride in us in this country, but I... Um, but but when we represent Muslims, I realize we are we are not really fully representing the narrative of uh, a community that has experienced slavery, has yeah. experienced mass incarceration, has experienced uh, police uh, brutality, all yep. and and that's very much part of uh, the American Muslim story too. Where did it come from? I mean, it's not it's also not something that's like you know we talk about 9/11, but it's not like before 9/11 nobody didn't like Muslims. People yeah. kind of didn't like Muslims then either, but it wasn't as intense. Um, one thing I always talk about. Um, and not talk about, I talk about it because people ask me about it. Even like dozens of years later, I get asked about, is it true, you know, that movie, uh, What About Your Daughter? Remember that movie? Not yeah. Without My Daughter. Not Without My Daughter, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. not Without My Daughter, excuse me. It's the middle of the afternoon. What About um, Your Daughter? That what about might your daughter? be like a yeah. comedic like, play <laughs> off of Not Without Your Daughter. No, we can't do that. Not yeah. Without Your Daughter. Um, that, you know, Sally Fields you know, did that movie and, and we have still answering questions about, oh my yeah. gosh, is that, is that the dynamic between men and women? And, and, and I, my response is like, parental kidnapping happens in this country too. I'm a lawyer, I know this happens. Like, you know, yeah. So it's not like a cultural thing, but you know, the first, um, the first Gulf War, you, you said the first time you were, um, you were aware of that. Yeah. Same thing happened to me. I think I was in eighth grade and uh, uh, first Gulf War happened, and a teacher jokingly said to me, um, "Hey, call your uncle Saddam. You know, call your uncle Saddam and tell him to cut it out." And I had no—I didn't know who Saddam was. I'm Pakistani. I had no idea what's going on. <laughs> um, but you had that. You had the first World Trade Center attack. Uh, there is a history. There's a really uh, interesting um, documentary called "Real Bad Arabs" R E E L that shows like the the kind of the film history of how Arabs and Muslims, which are always conflated. Right? I mean, Arabs and Muslims, everybody thinks Muslims are all Arabs and Arabs are all Muslims. Are more, most Arabs Muslim? Or are, actually, are most Muslims Arab? 15% of uh, Muslims are Arab. 15 Around the world. 15% Only 15% of the world yeah. Muslims are Arab. Yeah. And not many people know that. They just get a lot of airtime. Yes, they do. The Middle East gets too much airtime. My um, Arab friends, yeah. Yeah, you guys kind of mess it up yeah. for all of us. But there's like 100 million. Sorry, sorry Mohammed. Yeah. 100 million Muslims <laughs> in China. Indonesia is the greatest, like the, it has the largest Muslim population. Um, but Real Bad Arabs shows like the history of how Hollywood has like, um, you know, stereotyped Arabs as either these oil-rich sheikhs or, you know, they've got harems and like, so these characters have existed, right? And then these got built on after 9-11. Um, and there have been, there are organizations and institutes and funders that like put money into um, propagating like, you know, these kinds of things that kind of really undermine our community. And one thing I wanted to talk about, actually, you mentioned it earlier about how when you took those kids in, very, in that very liberal space and you yeah. were kind of shocked to see that. What's important is like, I don't want to completely demonize the right. I can't put all the blame on the right for where American Muslims are today or other minorities. The truth is there has been liberal complicity in this. There has been liberal complicity. And um, years ago, you know, I wrote an op-ed about 
how in the political space has, be, has become so inhospitable for Muslims. We're not welcome on the right. But even on the left, there are so many instances of like Muslim organizations and charities and other things, you know, trying to invite uh, democratic legislators and politicians and, and uh, you know, local leaders to come be part of our events, meet our communities, and just, they won't do it because they're, you know, they also are a little bit afraid of backlash and for political reasons. And so we find ourselves like politically homeless. Last time I checked, Bill Maher wasn't on the right. There's you go. Bill Maher is like the, one of the best examples of like a progressive bigot. Um, I've written about him numerous times. Um, and you know, the, 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 my issue with Bill Maher is fine, he can have his personal opinions, but what, what people like Bill Maher tend to do is you have to see who do they give their platforms to. He has a huge platform. He will not invite, Muslim, he will not invite Muslims like Wajahat or Haris or myself. He will invite Muslims who wholesale kind of reject Islam in a way and reject the Muslim experience in any positive uh, way, shape, and form. Um, and those same people end up getting lots and lots of funding. I mean, we've been talking about this a lot, like in the last few days, because all of us do all this community work. We have these amazing ideas. And we have a lot of funders here as well. We have, we have funders, in, but we don't, we don't, we struggle for the funding. I mean, right. I know Wajahat did a, um, you did a panel earlier on online hate and extremism and how to combat that. And, and the way, one way to combat that, because the online space is a space where you have um, violent extremists and terrorists who use it very well, yeah. and then you have anti-Muslim bigots who use it very well, and they both have the exact same message, but the, ma the majority of us who are in the middle, we don't have the tools and the skills, and we don't know how to use it. So I, I was a fellow at the New America Foundation, and for a few couple of years, we did uh, social media trainings for Muslim organizations around the country and activists to how to like, get your story out, how to use these tools better, how to drown out all the ugly, all the terrorists and the anti-Muslim bigots. But after two rounds of it, we got no more funding. Like that wasn't enough, yeah. it's not enough. So it's like, it's very true. yeah, it's very frustrating. So before we open up to the audience, because I want to get, get you guys involved, I do want to make, I do want to take responsibility. So as American Muslims, you know, we talk about what was wrong in terms of people telling our stories, but I do want to take some responsibility. Because as, as, you, all, as you know, um, uh, Keith Ellison, the American Muslim congressman from, uh, from Minnesota, as he says, if you're not around the table, you're on the menu. That's just with any community, especially minority communities. If you're not around the table, then you're on the menu. And we have not been around the table. That's just the reality. American Muslims, Rabia joked about this earlier, but we were probably failures in our parents' eyes because we're not physicians, doctors, and engineers. Um, I, I don't care how much I achieve. Um, I'm still not a physician. <laughs> And I get that. So our parents were refugees, they were immigrants, they wanted to make sure that their ch children were stable, um, and they wanted to make sure that, they, that their children had a better life than they had. But we would never got into the, to the, to the areas and sectors where you actually impact public opinion. We barely had Muslim journalists, uh, Muslim, Muslims in the entertainment industry, uh, Muslims in media, in, in politics, policy, in and politics, and all of that. That was not something that we did. So when 9-11 happened, we were caught off guard. There was a group of people who didn't represent us, our narrative, our community, who hijacked literally our faith and planes and committed a terrorist att attack, but we were also hijacked at that moment. Our narrative, our community, was also hijacked at that moment. And what we did was we were the typical, I mean, the African-American Muslim community didn't do this, they were integrated. They were, they were doing all this great work for decades. But the immigrant Muslim communities, they sat on the sidelines. We were not in the public conversation. And over the 15 years, that's changed now, of course. Now you've got people like Rabia, like Wajahad, like so many others who are in the conversation. But we were not there. 
you know, the uh, Washington Post, and of course others as well, they always do polls about perceptions of American Muslims. 60 to 65% of America has a negative perception of, of American Muslims. Why do you think that is? Can anybody guess? Never met one. They've never met one. They've never met one. When you meet an American Muslim, it's not magic, like we don't, we don't really like how it is magic. It's is it magic? I don't know. <laughs> I know some pretty like weird Muslims. Like, I wouldn't want to be around some Muslims. <laughs> yeah. So, but no, it's it's not magic. It's the fact that you humanize people, right? You put a face, and so no matter what the media says, no matter what Fox News says, no, Mo, Muhammad, Fatima, Rabia, they're not like that. And I think that's part of the challenge that we have within our communities to take responsibility is to tell our stories. Because violent extremism, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, all these groups, they're a reality. They are a reality. But the KKK is a reality. Dylan Roof is a reality. Um, Timothy McVeigh was a reality. Uh, white supremacism is a reality. But I don't go around expecting every white, straight male who's a Christian to apologize for Dylan Roof, who wanted to start a race war in South Carolina. I don't do that. I mean, if I did that, I wouldn't get any funding from anyone. <laughs> right? Right? So, so the idea is we need to also get out of our comfort, like little comfy zones, and engage folks. Because when we do that, I think that's, that's a part of being honest with ourselves and communities. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. If you like today's show, check out the Future Dialogue on Race, featuring Michelle Norris, Adam Foss, Kazir Khan, and Amy Inahosa. While the subject of race and racism will likely continue to be contentious, it is a discussion that's imperative for civil society. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts, or find it in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's conversation on being Muslim and American in 2017. Rabia Chaudhry. You know, I just want to, um, before yeah. we open up for uh, questions, just build a little bit on this because I'm going to air a little bit of dirty laundry here and um, add to the complexity of like the, the challenges that American Muslims are facing. For those of us who decide to work with government or in government or other things, that also has become on some level controversial in some spaces in the Muslim community. Because of 9-11, because of the defensive posture we have had to take, and I think legitimately had to take, um, because of things like police surveillance, because of things like immigration being used against, um, against Muslim immigrants, uh, so many other reasons, feeling unsafe. We, like, a lot of our community has taken a very defensive and insular posture. So for those of us who say, no, this is not the way forward. My kids can't live like this. We have to engage. We have to be part of the policy making. We have to be at the table. Um, professional sellouts. I mean, like, there, there is the risk of being called a sellout in your community um, for saying that, nope, I'm going like, to do, do this the way that, you know, I'm going to be in the room with the people who, who don't want me there. We probably don't want us there, but that's the only way to make the change. But there's so many different ways to make change. So that adds, and, I, and that to me, and I feel sympathy for people who feel like that because I know it's coming from a place of insecurity. And it, again, but for the young people, that is another one of my concerns. My daughter, who is in college, um, she's studying cybersecurity. I want her to go into government. I want her to, I mean, she can do whatever she wants, but I, I would be happy if she, if she worked in government. Well, you're going to be disappointed. 
You're going to be like your parents. No, no. She can do whatever she, she can do whatever she wants. Um, but the point is that, you know, I know there, there are a lot of young American Muslims who are getting conflicting messages from, from leadership in our community that says, no, like, you know, retreat. And, and we don't engage institutions of power until they, you know, capitulate to us. And I... And, and that's also, I think, like a no-go. And so we're in a, a difficult space as a, as a community. We're having a lot of growing pains right now. We're really trying to figure out what leadership should look like. We don't have, um, we don't have a pope, you know? We don't have like a... Uh, uh, we don't have a pope. No, we that's don't have a pope. That's true, we yeah. don't. Wajahat would like to be one, but would we don't Would you like to be our pope, Wajahat? Um, Barack? Brother. Brother Barack. Brother Barack. Oh, Brother Barack, that's right, yeah. He's out water skiing, so can't wait. Yes. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to uh, share that like, with you guys. I, I don't m mind ever being the token Muslim in the room. Because you know what? I will own that room. Yeah. And we were talking, Wajahad and I were talking to Farid Zakaria about this. Um, you know, Farid Zakaria of Farid Zakaria. Um, we were talking about this uh, with him over lunch a couple of days ago. Like, how many times have you been like the token brown guy in the room? Like, yep, that, that's part of... That's part of the industry, and you've got, you've got to do it. But then you've got to show people why, you, why you're smart, and you can do it, and you're baller, and you, you can essentially hang with all of them. And open the door for others. Others, exactly. Open the door for other Muslims. Yeah. So let's open it up to the audience. Yeah. Uh, if I have any questions. Okay. Um, I know we're obviously talking about Muslims in America, but I've been thinking a lot about the parallel narrative with Muslims in Europe. Um, and sort of what are the links that you see there in the discourse? Um, and particular related to your question or the point that you made about part of the issue is that most people haven't met a Muslim American, but I feel like in Europe there are enough Muslims maybe that m most people have met one and there's still some of this discourse. So I was just wondering, what do you see the connections? I, I spent some, uh, quite a bit of time in Europe doing research and engaging Muslim communities prior to joining government when I was in civil society. I always, I caution people from comparing Europe, European Muslims, uh, to American Muslims. Experiences are very different. And even within Europe, from one European country to another, uh, uh, the experiences are very different. Uh, the, first of all, there is a long history and legacy of colonization in Europe to a lot of the countries um, that, uh, 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 of the folks who've actually immigrated, for, pri primarily for labor, and, and to actually uh, do the job that a lot of the Europeans don't want to do. And so what, what, what's happened is there's, there's, a very, there's a larger socioeconomic challenge there that American Muslims, a large part of the immigrant, immigrant American Muslim community has not felt. A lot of the more, you know, when our parents came, they came as professionals, as students. Uh, more of the recent immigration is a little bit different. But European Muslims, I, I, I tell you something, Islamophobia a lot of the idea, initial ideas about Islamophobia starts in Europe. Mm -hmm. I've seen this. Anti-Semitism too. Anti-Semitism as well. Same thing with anti-Semitism. It starts in Europe and then it immigrates <laughs> over the pond to the United States and it becomes mainstream here. And if you look at, if you look at a lot of the links, and Wajahad, he wrote in Fear Inc., he, he kind of showed the links between the European anti-Muslim crowd and the American anti-Muslim crowd, you've got very close um, uh, engagement and cooperation. But Muslim communities in Europe have also a bigger problem with, with, with integration because they also don't live in societies where immigration was a historical fact. America, for good or bad, has, is a country of immigrants. No matter how we, we've treated good, our immigrants. For good. For good, right? No, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah but no, yeah. for good, but I, I meant like. It's messing with you. Yes. I hope for good. Yeah. I hope we're good. But we've had immigration happen in this country, forced immigration. 
and unforced immigration happened in this country. And we've, you know, we've gone through what Japanese Americans have gone through, what Irish Americans have gone through, what Jewish Americans have gone through, what uh, Chinese Americans have gone through. And recently with what, you know, of course, the Latino community, and recently with what Muslim immigrant communities go through. So we've had that legacy of, of, of civil rights and the women's suffrage movement and uh, the labor movement that a lot of the folks in Europe don't have. And so I always caution folks from, from making that comparison. Yeah, I mean, the history of Muslims in Europe is very different from the history of Muslims in America. But beyond that, these societies are very different. I mean, like the, secular, the secularism in Europe, to yeah. me, is more like freedom from religion than freedom of religion. Right. Where in the United States, I mean, freedom of religion is like one of our cornerstones. And so uh, to, to be a person of another faith, to come to this country, you know your right to practice your faith is protected. Yes. Uh, where, you know, in Europe, it's, it's, it's not the same situation. And you have also, like you said, economic situations. There's a lot of ghettoization over there. Um, there's one big landmass. I mean, like, so, you know, it's, there's a lot of different reasons. But um, you've, in, in America, at least, I think you're going to find most Muslim communities are fairly highly educated, upwardly mobile. It's, it's, it's like an apples to oranges situation. Yeah. yeah. No, you don't get a question. No, I will. I'll, um. I'll come back to you. I'll come back to you. <laughs> you don't get a like, no, no. Ahead? I'm talking no. to the Muslim in the front. Yeah, he knows everything. No, we were talking to the Pope. I'm talking to the Pope. Talking the Pope, Pope doesn't get a question. The Pope doesn't get a question. <laughs> um, well, um, this past semester at school, a good friend of mine was expelled for um, drug abuse, and he was Muslim. But the weird part of all of the weird part of it was that his roommate was also abusing, but he was a white kid who was paying full tuition and he got off with not even in, like a suspension. And this was a um, one of those self-acclaimed very liberal, inclusive schools. Mm. And I was wondering if you guys could speak to how these communities who very outwardly project that they are inclusive communities, how they can deal with their own implicit biases and how um, we might and deal with our own implicit biases as well. Yeah. You want to address that? Well, you know, I mean, like, I can't really make the direct comparison yeah. to, like, the criminal justice system, but, right. I mean, we are talking about systems, right? We're talking about systems. So racism, when you think about racism, it, it is systematic. And that's, it, it becomes, like, institutionalized, it becomes systematic because, like you said, our biases get operationalized. Um, and, you know, when it, when it, and, and the thing is, like, you cannot, you can never, I don't believe you can ever, I have my biases, I have my prejudices, so does, we all do. And the only way to protect from that really is to, is from the, through the law, you know, through policy, through statute, through enforcement, through litigation. I mean, I, I'm a lawyer, so maybe that's the way I look at it, but I really feel like um, there are certain protections that have to be built in. So in a situation like that, I would say, well, this needs to be challenged then, you know, it needs to be challenged through the courts because you have to uphold people to the same standards. Um, because the thing is, we're not, we, Human beings don't behave sometimes until we're absolutely forced to behave. And so, um, you know, to that end, I don't say that you have to love me, but you have to respect me and give me the rights that I expect. Um, it, you know, it's interesting. There's been polling done on, like, on um, anti-Muslim sentiment. And from people who are conservative, they don't like Muslims and mistrust Muslims mostly because of national security issues. Yes. And people who are liberals, who identify as liberal, um, their hesitation and their, their mistrust of Muslims is on uh, progressive issues like LGBTQ issues, women's issues, but we are disliked in both, you know, on both sides of the spectrum just for different issues. So, um, you know, you have to deal with these, with these biases and those questions too. And I think, it, uh, so addressing your question, I think it's important, biases happen and, and they become operationalized because of public perception, right? That just, that's reality. I can't expect someone who watches, who actually watches even a little bit of Fox News or even CNN to not question 
yeah. a Muslim. I mean, that's, that's just naturally going to happen, unfortunately, until we can change the coverage and, and the conversation around Muslims in this country. But what we can do together, like beyond just Muslims, so Muslims, as, as, as Wajahat said earlier, Muslims will stand up for the LGBT community. But LGBT community will stand up for, the, for Black, Lives, Black Lives Matter. And we, we have, that intersectionality has to take place. So when we see that, when you see a Muslim, or when you see a hijabi, or when you see um, uh, a young gay person who are going through issues like that, we can't stay quiet. Other communities can't stay quiet. Because if they do, then you reinforce that bias. But if we actually are able to stand up and say no, we're not going to accept that. You know, Bill Maher, you might be a progressive. You might be great on, on, on issues like on LGBTQ issues and women's issues. But you're a bigot when it comes to Muslim issues. That's unacceptable. You can't do that. And you can't get away with saying the N-word um, and, 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 and be perfectly fine with it. So I think when we learn to be able to stand up for each other, that's when we'll be able to start to address the, the institutional biases that exist. I just want to hit a third rail topic and make your life as uncomfortable as possible. Uh, but Robbie, you guys said, you know, you guys are seeing a sellout sometimes because you're in the privileged spaces. And I know specifically you've, you've dealt with this. And one of the major issues is always the assumption or the reality of anti-Semitism within yes. Muslim communities. You have been called a Zionist, faith-washing, Trojan horse, Muslim Jewess because of your engagement with Zionist Jews and Israel. Yeah. And from the mainstream of America, you both have been called uh, anti-Semites and extremists because of pro-Palestinian advocacy. How do you engage that in 2017 America? And how do we disrupt what I would say are the litmus tests in Jewish and Muslim communities which prevent us from talking to each other? Yeah, it took a lot to earn that title. Um, <laughs> I had to work really hard. And I'm, at the, I'm that person who online, I get called Hezbollah, Hamas, a Zionist, all at the same time. It's yes. remarkable. Hezbollah, Hamas, and Zionist. And Zionist. Yes. I'm, yeah. So it just means I think I'm doing it right. Yes. It just means I'm doing it right. It means that, I mean, for me, you know, like you're right. Our communities, and when I say our, I don't mean just the Muslim. We find this in Jewish spaces. We find this in Christian. We find this in all kinds of communities. We have litmus tests of who we engage with and who we won't talk to. Simple as that. So uh, Wajat and I were both part of um, a program uh, called the Shalom, uh, Muslim Leadership Institute with an organization called Shalom Hartman uh, out of uh, Jerusalem. And, you know, we traveled to Israel. And we studied there. And we tried to put ourselves in, in the shoes of our of our hosts and lecturers who taught us why Zionism was important to them. Now, up until this time, we spent our entire uh, year, you know, growing up as an activist and pro-Palestinian activism, working with Jewish communities, but of certain segment of Jewish communities. So Zionism was the line you didn't cross. You work with Jews, you don't work with Zionists. Like there was, this is a line. So we crossed the line. We paid heavily for it. We still survived. We're okay. Um, but it has created con it has created relationships and conversations that has forced us to completely forget everything we know about one another. Yeah. Um, not just what I think and know about people who identify as Zionists, but what they think about Muslims. Um, it has forced us to be in each other's social uh, media spaces where we see each other's conversations. And there is something incredibly revealing about sitting into the conversation a community has internally about itself. Because then you can't say it's propaganda. Then you can't say that's a talking point you're giving to me. When you're sitting in the middle of a, a community that is a different community and you're listening to them talk amongst themselves, you understand the, you know, authentically like what their issues are and how they're challenging it. So um, I just think this is a model that we need to replicate, especially for communities that don't. And I mean this even, I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, you know how I feel about Trump. But I, I do even mean this with, uh, when it comes to like, you know, people who 
really want to ban us from this country, but I feel like the only way forward is to like be in those really, really difficult spaces. And um, we, somebody's going to be called the sellout. You know, Malcolm X was called. Somebody, I'm not saying I'm Malcolm X, but I'm saying somebody's going to be called the. You have to like we we need different models. It just yeah. hasn't worked. If something hasn't worked, I don't want to keep trying it. And and so she was the she, she's the Hamas Hezbollah Zionist, and I'm the sellout Muslim who works for the U.S. government and essentially tries to like infiltrate Muslim communities. Um, although I worked, I actually ran a Muslim American institution for nine years, but now because I work for the Department of Homeland Security, and I do, I work on issues pertaining to violent extremism and counterterrorism and immigration, but I do it because I love my country, and I also want to make sure that we get this thing right. We get it right, yeah. We're not getting it right. We haven't gotten, it this, we haven't gotten this right for a while, and we need to get it right. But what I always tell people is that litmus tests, when it comes to engagement, they have to go. They have to go. I have to be willing to sit down with anyone, whether it's my Jewish brothers and sisters, whether it's the LGBTQ community, no matter what it is, we need to sit down and create those safe spaces. If we don't create those safe spaces, those, per those perceptions that are at times very real, and this is, you know, engaging in this, in this space, you realize that perceptions are, are stronger than the reality. Like if someone holds a yeah. perception, that is for them their reality. That is their worldview. That is how the world is seen in their eyes. And so we have to get beyond that. Like we, and we were having this conversation last night. We were talking about being called sellouts at times. But it's important for us to, to do that because our children, our kids, I don't want my kids to hesitate going into any industry in this nation. I want to, if they want to be in, in, in Hollywood, I want them to be the most successful actress, actor, whoever they are. If they want to go into the intelligence field and do amazing work in the intelligence community, they should be able to do that without questioning their identity. Or loyalty. Or loyalty. To anybody, yeah. To anything. To Muslims or, yeah. And so I, 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 I work hard today because I don't want people to question my children's loyalty. Whether that is being an American or being a Muslim. I want my kids to, to wake up and not worry about their loyalty. I don't know if, if my kids will feel that, unfortunately. I've got a 15 and a 17 year old, and I, you know, they feel it, my son feels it. I remember a couple of years back, my son, uh, they went to overseas to visit family, got back, and the first question that he got after he went back to school was, did you go visit an Al-Qaeda training camp? This was in eighth grade. I can't imagine going through that in eighth grade. If I, if I would have gone that, through that in eighth grade, I don't think I'd have been able to get my security clearance. I really would not have been able to get my security clearance. So the, the, the level of, a, of burden of identity that, that a lot of our children have, I think we need, you know, we need to start addressing that. And it happens by us making sure that we cross those litmus test lines. Thank you all so much, Robin. Thank you, I hope that was great. Rabia Chaudhry researched the intersection of religion and violent extremism as a senior fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Harris Tarn led the Washington, D.C. office of the Muslim Public Affairs Council. He also wrote the book, An Introduction to Muslim America. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. 
Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.